And on front page with me this morning, Muhammad Azam Wan Hashim, Research Executive at Ideas. Good morning, Azam. Good morning. Now, cut has been <laughs> discussed incessantly over the last week. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of talk about the move to introduce cut to year four students. Why are we putting so much focus on Jawi calligraphy when there are bigger issues where education is concerned? I, I definitely agree with you that there are much uh, bigger priorities in terms of education policy that could come out from the Ministry of Education. I think the decision to introduce cut into the school curriculum has been something that the government has been meaning to do for the the last five years, I believe. Mm-hmm. And the the objectives of the introduction of cut in into the curriculum, they say it's a decision to prevent this loss or this decrease in in a lost art calligraphy in in terms of the Islamic alphabet Jawi, but. At the same time, I do believe that there there are some uh, much more important policies that they could prioritize. And I, I'm also a little bit confused, much like everyone else, uh, as to why they seem to be focusing on these these minor things like mm-hmm. the, the <laughs> controversial black shoes and, and cut, for example. Uh, there's been not that much coming out of the Ministry of Education uh, in terms of progressing the the growth of our children and yeah. and the system of education you know where from a policy perspective we are looking for those policies that educate our students and make them a bit more future ready and you know wh- where where's the preparation for the fourth industrial revolution where's the introduction of computer science you know a lot of people have brought up thailand as an example of how they're introducing mm-hmm. uh, computer science into the curriculum and maybe this can be a different Right subject that we can introduce. Well, we do have coding, I think, in the curriculum, but I, I suppose there should be an emphasis on other, I guess, subjects. I personally think English should be <laughs> focused on a lot more than it has, you know, had. How beneficial do you feel that Jawi calligraphy is to a standard four curriculum, especially now that there's been an update? The cabinet did say that it will be optional for vernacular school teachers mm-hmm. to uh, whether or not they decide they want to. Con- Conduct Jawi calligraphy in their classes. I think you really have to take a look at what the objective is here. So, just purely going forth on what the government has said is the objective, which is to preserve kind of like this lost art. Well, first we need to look at what is actually the best way to preserve a lost art, and is this policy the best and most effective way? to reach that objective. Right. And I, I believe I agree with Tansri Rafida as is, she said it should, you know, be an elective subject. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, we haven't done any studies on this, but my inclination is that in order to preserve this kind of uh, art form, you really shouldn't make it broad-based adoption. It should really be for this specialized group of people who are motivated and enthusiastic mm-hmm. about the subject and they want to adopt it themselves. You know, they are personally motivated to want to take it up. Um, I think in terms of preserving an art form, uh, you shouldn't really tackle it from a mandatory yeah. broad base. Everyone should do this. Okay. Well, when we come back, we'll take a look at this other headline. Uh, senior lawyers are walking out on Datuk Sri Najib Raza. We've got more on that next here on Light. 
On front page with me this morning is Muhammad Azam Wan Hashim, Research Executive at Ideas. And it looks like several of uh, Datuk Sri Najib Razak's senior lawyers um, are no longer representing the former Prime Minister in the SRC International Sindrian Berhad trial. Azam, what does this mean for Najib and for the trial if everyone's you know jumping ship here? This new development for his defense, it, it serves both a good and bad thing for his trial. The good part is that his defense has a valid reason to ask for more trial time mm-hmm. uh, as it seeks for new lawyers. The prosecution's case is about to end in the next coming weeks. And uh, Shafi Abdullah, his main lawyer, wants to uh, delay that as, as far as possible. So that's a good thing. Uh, they, they, they can delay the, the trial process even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get more time. The bad thing is that, well, let, let's take a look at the two lawyers that he's about to lose. They're, they're some of the best lawyers in town. Yusuf Zainal Abidin is a former uh, solicitor general and Kamarul Kamaruddin, uh, he, he's, he's a legend in the legal field. So uh, they're both good and bad to this development. Right. And uh, how do you think this will actually affect his defense? I think there will actually be an effort uh, an effect to this development in court cases, especially ones with high high stakes political similar trial cases. The the main kind of strategy has always been to deny, deflect, and most importantly, delay. Mm-hmm. So this is important in that they can delay the 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 trial even more. But the thing is that trial preparation is extremely time consuming, extremely laborious. It seems that with a new set of lawyers, uh, there may not be a continuity in this trial. Okay, well, it's definitely a story that we are watching very, very closely. Coming up, the country loses an average of 2 billion ringgit every year to scammers. We'll be taking a look at that one next here on Light. On front page with me this morning, Muhammad Azam Wan Hashim, research executive at Ideas. And the country loses an average of 2 billion ringgit every year to scammers. And I feel like it's every day we're reading about someone who got scammed. The latest one being a senior citizen of over 100,000 ringgit. Now, how is it, Azam, that the country is losing money on scams? I'm not going to try and generalize it to everyone, but... Pretty much, there is a level of gullibility to it. To to many people, it seems that the authorities are not doing enough to prevent these scams from happening. You can go so far as to say that you know uh, enforcement tools such as the MCMC Act, which are meant to protect people from these types of scams, are uh, more utilized as as a tool of politics than than they are to to protect the man in the street. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we have to look into kind of the larger development here. I think this delves into a, a, a larger discussion on how technological developments have affected our vulnerability to these types of scams. There are many types of scams where it's person to person, and that has to do with just being aware and just being literate and just being educated about these types mm-hmm. of things. And then there's also the type where it happens online, you know, like you, you provide your phone number to, to some subscription service, and then that gets... Uh, distributed to anyone who wants to buy it. So there, there is a, a level of digital literacy that is lacking and a lack of knowledge on how these types of scams may come about Right. and a lack of uh, education on, you know, the, the enforcement has tried to educate the people on, on these uh, things to prevent the scams from happening. But you know, unfortunately, uh, they, they just keep happening. Right. Talking about the two billion ringgit lost every year through scams, how will this affect the economy? 
Well, it will definitely affect the economy because it it's a loss in people's uh, confidence. You know, when 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 they lose a lot of money, it affects consumer spending. It affects the confidence in in people to spend and invest in the economy, and it also affects the confidence of the authorities and how effective they are in curbing these kind of activities. Uh, you could argue that they've been trying to educate the people to stop these scams from happening. But I, I think there is also something about the banking system that is used to to further the scams that aren't really working in tandem with the authorities. Mm-hmm. So I feel like something needs to be done there. All right. When we come back, we'll take a look at this headline. Set clear transition plan for Anwar PM is told. That's next here on Light. On front page with me this morning, Muhammad Azam Wan Hashim, Research Executive at Ideas. And a group of NGOs, including Bursay 2.0 and ABIM, want the PM to set a clear transition plan for Datuk Sri Anwar to take over by 2021. And I guess this issue has been ongoing since PH came into power uh, a year on. Um, they've already started, you know, making noise. And should the government finally take heed and issue a timeline. Well, yeah, I, I, I think for sure, I think transparency in this type of huge political change is is definitely important for multiple reasons. This uncertainty about the transition has led to a lot of uncertainty elsewhere, primarily economic and political. You know, internationally, people are looking into Malaysia with increasing economic uncertainty because of this lack of transparency with when that transition of power is going to happen. You know, uh, initially it was set to be two years and increasingly over the timeline that that deadline or that timeline has become more and more vague or, you know, the prime minister has kind of shied away to the point that people aren't even clear. So this this is leading to a lot of economic uncertainty. Uh, People don't know what the policies will be in the upcoming year. Uh, People don't know if there is going to be a transition of power and therefore a change in rules and procedures. Uh, I think it's crucial for the government to really be transparent uh, domestically and internationally. And furthermore, I think there is also uh, political instability that this brings out. The fact that it's unclear whether Anwar will take the prime ministership is potentially causing, you know, friction within the PKR party. Well, you know, Tun Dr. Mahathir Muhammad did come out and say that, you know, this is, <laughs> even bringing it up is causing instability. Why don't you just let me get on with the job of, you know, running things and, and getting us out of a bad economic situation? Should we just leave the government to plan the transition themselves? Well, there's actually two ways of viewing this. And the way that I lean towards has to do with democratic accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I feel like a large proportion of the population that voted for Pakatan Harpan had done so thinking that Mahade would hold the seat for Anwar. So, you know, there, there, there is this group of voters that want Anwar to be prime minister. And uh, they voted for that. And within the Pakatan Harpan manifesto, there is it, it has not been made explicit when that would happen. But throughout the campaigning period, it has been pretty obvious that uh, Anwar will be the next prime minister. So a lot of voters actually chose to democratically vote in Anwar through the proxy of Pakistan Harban. And I think to a certain degree, there is a sense of public and voter and democratic accountability here. And I think uh, as voters, we should have a role to play in 
setting this timeline. All right. Well, when we come back, uh, it looks like we have a very special visitor from Indonesia. President Joko Widodo is in town for a two-day official visit. We'll be discussing uh, his visit next here on Light. On front page with me this morning, Muhammad Azam Wanhashem, Research Executive at Ideas. And it looks like Pa Jokowi is in town. Um, Indonesian President Jokowi Dodo is here on a two-day official visit to strengthen already close bilateral relations with Malaysia. So how do you think he'll go about further strengthening our ties with mm. Indonesia? Any interaction between uh, two heads of state at this level, especially between two neighbors like Malaysia and Indonesia, will always mean positive developments for bilateral ties. What's interesting for me is looking at it more multilaterally within the region. You know, ASEAN is faced with this uh, tough landscape within the economic struggle with U.S.-China trade tensions, Brexit. Uh, Within this global struggle, we have seen ASEAN member states be a little bit more competitive towards one another than cooperative. Uh, It's kind of been focused more on a uh, bilateral movement of how they can benefit from the the trade struggles instead of a multilateral together. How do we overcome this uh, global struggle. So what is the difference, do you feel, uh, between this meet and previous ones? Because I think we have generally a good relationship with Indonesia, yeah? Well, for the first time, politically, Indonesia is meeting with someone, a prime minister in Malaysia that is not a part of Barisan National. Uh, Again, going back to the overall regional economic progress, Prime Minister Tonahade has openly supported his, his strive to progress within ASEAN economic integration. So he wants ASEAN member states to work together uh, amidst increasing global struggles. The interesting thing is this agenda for increasing economic integration can't really move on unless Indonesia's huge market really jumps on board and is supportive of this move. So it's interesting to see how these conversations will go on. And it's really interesting for me to see what Jokowi's position is on intra-ASEAN integration, because the agenda and the discussion between Malaysia and Indonesia regarding greater ASEAN economic ties is really dependent on Indonesia joining that agenda because of their massive market. So yeah, it's really interesting to me what developments there are in, in, in that respect.